Welcome everyone to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with not one, but two fantastic guests, Dr. James Beck and Dr. Ignacio Mata to discuss the genetics of Parkinson's disease. And in particular, we're gonna dive into the differing prevalence of Parkinson's disease between people of different ancestries, and in particular, the role that genetics plays. So first off, Dr. Mata, he's at the Lerner Research Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. And his research goals are really focused around understanding the genetic component of neurological disorders more generally, including Parkinson's disease, but also migraine, uh, Parkinson's disease, dementia, and dementia with Lewy bodies. And he's in particular been focused on performing genetic studies in non-European populations, primarily those of minority ethnic backgrounds, such as Latinos. And now Dr. Beck is the chief scientific officer of the Parkinson's Foundation, where he oversees a portfolio, which has guided more than $360 million in research funding to explore the causes of Parkinson's disease and also how to improve treatments. And really, the Parkinson's Foundation's mission is working towards a world without Parkinson's disease. In particular, Dr. Beck relatively recently in the last couple of years has helped to launch the PD Generation Program, uh, which is a national study started by the Parkinson's Foundation that offers no-cost genetic testing for a number of different Parkinson's-related genes and genetic counseling as well to people with a confirmed Parkinson's diagnosis. Um, So I'm really excited to have both Dr. Beck and Dr. Mott on the program. Thank you both so much for taking the time. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. Dr. Mata, I wonder if I could start with you. You've been at the forefront of neurogenomics and Parkinson's disease for some time. I'd love to just cover a few different aspects of this. First, what was the understanding of the role that genetics plays in Parkinson's when you first started in the field? And how has that changed through today? And maybe you can just talk a little bit about your background and, and how you came to research this in the first place. Sure. Yeah. So I, I studied biology and under my bachelor's degree, I got really interested in, in genetics and I also love the brain. So uh, when I was looking to opportunities to do my PhD at my local university in Spain, I was lucky enough that there were two main research lines that they had, and one of them was neurogenic diseases. So they were doing a lot of work in Alzheimer's at the time, and they also wanted to start programming Parkinson's disease. And uh, as always happens, funding wasn't really there. Uh, so with the help of a Parkinson's support group in my local uh, city, uh, we actually got a little grant to be able to start doing some genetics. And by then, there was only really two genes that we know of that were involved in Parkinson's disease. Before that, Parkinson's was thought to be all environmental. So genetics really wasn't a playing a role. And in fact, uh, it was an exclusion criteria for diagnosis of Parkinson's disease to have a genetic medical history of uh, Parkinson's in your family. But the problem, I think, when we started is that those two genes, tersinuclein and Parkin, really affect uh, not your typical uh, presentation. They were a little bit on the early onset side, you know, your normal 60 to 70 year old. And then they, they had some, some features that didn't seem very typical. So we thought, okay, maybe these genes are important, but maybe only for a small subset. So we knew that there were probably other genes. And that, that's kind of how we got started. And then I was lucky to move to the Mayo Clinic uh, when the LERC2 gene was discovered. And then all my efforts shift to that gene that looked like supported more of the typical presentation of Parkinson's disease. The field moved really fast in those two, three years when I started my PhD. And I think the role of genetics became really important with LER2. And, and, uh, and it is very, I think it's one of the genes that is driving all the research that we're doing. And this is maybe a little bit of a leading question and probably an impossible one to answer, but how many genes are there involved in Parkinson's today, if you had to answer that question or put a number on it? Well, I mean, we, we know for more than 20 uh, in the familial forms, and then there's at least 78 risk factors. So, you know, genes where 
variants that are common in the population increase your risk by a little bit. I would say 100 plus, and, and hopefully we'll be able to have that answer soon. But yeah, there's a lot. And, and a lot of them are in like one or two families, especially the familial forms. There's, you know, there's maybe seven, eight genes that are kind of common amongst the families, but there's a lot of them where there's maybe one or two variants in very specific families. So Great. And uh, Jim, maybe this is a good uh, segue to you and to PD Generation in particular. So as I mentioned in the intro, you have a very large research portfolio from the early stage fundamental understanding the disease through to clinical trials and, and helping patients to get access to these medicines. I'd love to hear more about the PD generation problem. Clearly, genetics has become a big priority for you all in the last five to 10 years. I'd, l- I'd love for you to just talk through your background and also how the program started and, and how it works today in the context of those hundred odd genes that Dr. Mata mentioned. Yeah. So I think if I can just step back even a little bit further, because you know, you know, Nacha and I met a number of years ago, maybe too too long ago to really talk about the years. But uh, you know, that's kind of I think where we got really interested in genetics for funding. I mean, ninety-seven was when the first gene was identified, you know, was it two thousand three or four? For Lurk2. And so when Nacho and I met, he was, you know, really interested in, in genetics and and had a discussion around reaching out to non-European populations. So we were funding his work early on and recognizing the importance here. And then so likewise with PD generation, it came from a conversation. So one of our scientific advisory board members, Roy Alcale at Columbia deeply involved in genetics of Parkinson's as well from a clinical standpoint, and recognize that we're at a tipping point within the field of Parkinson's disease where, just like in cancer, precision medicine has come to the forefront where identifying a specific gene mutation can lead to a specific therapy. We're getting there for Parkinson's, which is, which is fantastic. It, it's not there yet, but the field wasn't ready. I mean, so if you want to recruit people for trials to test a specific medication that targets a specific gene, People have to know what gene they have. And so basically, we recognized that there was this real need in the community and put PD Generation together to offer, in essence, uh, genetic testing and counseling to just about anybody with Parkinson's. Um, it's US-based right now, but we're working to expand that as Nacho, with his help, uh, to reach other populations in our, in our hemisphere. Wonderful. That's great. And, and Nacho, I, it's been known for some time that genetic forms of Parkinson's are of different frequency in different populations. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what's known today about populations where genetic PD is is more frequent and what types, and, and then also what you all are working on, because I, I understand in Latino populations, there's still a lot of work to be done to understand which variants may be more prevalent. Yeah, I, I don't know if we can answer the question of if their genetic forms are more common, but we know that certain genes that are very well studied, like LER2, for example, variants have very very different frequencies depending on you know where you're coming from. When we started doing work in LER2, most of the families that we were identifying were in the uh, you know northern Europe. A lot of families in Norway, Ireland. So we thought that you know this could be a, a population-specific uh, mutation. Then when more studies came from other regions of the world, we we realized that this variant is actually very common elsewhere as well. Uh, but there's different. The difference in the frequency uh, from going to, you know, zero uh, or very low in populations in Asia, for example, or in some populations in Latin America where Native American ancestry is very high. And then it goes as high as 50% in Berbers uh, in North Africa. So one of every two patients have uh, uh, one of the variants in LER2. So I think it's understood 
understood in the in the field that there are differences in the populations. Then there's also variants in the LER2 gene that are also pre- only present in Asia, for example. There are risk variants, but they're only present in uh, Asia. So I think this is very interesting, again, from one gene perspective. But if we look at all the genes, the problem is that the research that we have right now and the data that we have right now is very Eurocentric. So the genes that we're all testing are the ones that have been identified in Europe. So we, we know a little bit of those, but we believe, at least I believe, that there are other genes that uh, still can be identified if we include uh, more diverse populations. And we see this in Latin America where we have a panel that we've been screening our families through that has all the known genes, all those 20-some that I was talking about. And we see that in Latin America, there's very few families that have uh, pathogenic variants in those genes. But there are still families with like five, six, seven affected individuals that look like there's something going on there, a Mendelian uh, form of the disease. But none of the genes are hits in the, any of these families. So I, 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 we're now using uh, whole genome sequencing to try to identify new genes. So there's definitely things to, to understand, especially are coming from the, the uh, more diverse, underrepresented populations, I think. Interesting. So, Jim, I guess in, in PDG narration, the main things that you'll see are patients who have either a LARC2 or one of the GBA, one of the many GBA variants. So, Nacho, is it right that those which are tend to be the heavy hitters in U.S. population or particularly Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry or, or Moroccan Berber, those actually aren't necessarily the most common ones in, in Latin America. Is that right? Yeah, actually, GB, GBA is different than LER2. So uh, while LER2, we see differences in Latin America where the more uh, Native American countries like uh, Peru, for example, have very low frequency. GBA frequency is very common in Peru, for example. Is The frequency is very similar to what we see in the U.S. and in Europe. Uh, however, in Latin America, we see the opposite effect. Actually, we identified in Colombia a new population-specific mutation in GBA that accounts for 50% of all the GBA carriers and basically increases by a fold the frequency. So instead of being 5%, which is what we see in the U.S., in Colombia, it's about 10% of the patients will have a GBA mutation because of this population-specific variant. In the case of GBA, we identify a cohort that, for example, if we think about clinical trials, like Jim was mentioning, it could be ideal because there's there's quite a few uh, patients and they all carry this one or half of them carry this one single variant. So uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah, they're, they're, it goes both ways. So it's not only that some of them are underrepresented, but some of them are actually more frequent, probably because there's not a lot of coming people coming from outside of Colombia, for example, and maybe one of the founders, uh, one of the European individuals that moved there had this variant or it just originated in Colombia and only spread out there. Right. So yeah, Jim, I'd love to hear your your learnings from the PD generation work so far. I, I'm doing some background research as preparing for the podcast. I think you all are planning to test at least 3,000 people this year or, or maybe cumulatively through this year. I'd love to hear more about what the larger vision is for the program. And, and you mentioned before looking at expanding outside the US. I'd love to just talk about a little bit what it's been like to get it set up, the challenges, the things you've learned, and, and what you see it looking like in the future. I mean, that's a really great question. And I, I just want to you know, put in context here for listeners who may not be super familiar with Parkinson's and genetics. We talked about 20 some odd uh, different genes and a bunch of risk factor genes. But by and large, only about 10 to 15% of people with Parkinson's will have a genetic link, clear genetic link that we know of to link them to their PD. So just it's, this isn't like um, Huntington's or some other diseases where there's a, or, or CF where there's like almost always a, a genetic linking them. I think when we started this process, I think the scientific consensus was there's going to be about 
10% of the individuals we would identify would have a genetic link. What's interesting from this study, and this is not an, a true epidemiological study where we're just randomly finding people with Parkinson's, you know, people come into a study and recruit, but nevertheless, we're still seeing something on the order of 15 to 17% of people have a genetic form of Parkinson's disease of the seven genes we're looking at. So we're only looking at the top seven, what are relatively rare forms of Parkinson's disease. So we're covering GBA, we're covering LERC2, we've got the alpha-synuclein gene, we've got pink and Parkin, which are often associated with the young onset Parkinson's disease, as well as DJ1 and DPS35. So these are relatively rare genes as they come through, yet we're still seeing someone who has a carrier for each of those genes. So we're talking about GBA. We have like 170 people who've been identified with GBA mutations, which we think are pathogenic. We have a whole bunch who have GBA mutations, which we don't think are pathogenic. And that's uh, you know interesting thing to talk about too. And, and getting us up and to this point was no mean feat because we started in September of 2019 and we're really hit our stride by like January of 2020. And then, you know, the world kind of shifted, you could say, with COVID. And we were really based upon doing in-person genetic testing uh, where people come in and we do a blood draw because get a lot of DNA. One of our goals of our PD generation study is to share that DNA with researchers like Nacho. So we're doing just using CLIA approved testing to just take a look at these seven genes. But you know, Nacho and his and his colleagues and researchers can take a look at whole genome sequencing. They can look at a whole bunch of other you know, methylation of DNA, perhaps to, to better understand what's going on. So we want to make certain we had that. So we had a uh, pivot and moved to using telemedicine. So we added a telemedicine arm. Uh, my colleague, Anna Nido, who's the scientific lead for the study, she's done tremendous work with our team and been able to implement a telemedicine component to PD generation. So where our recruitment, you know, the number of people coming into the study basically dropped to zero over the summer of 2020. Once we really had gotten uh, telemed up and going, we really hit our stride again and have been consistently recruiting over, you know, 200 people a month since the spring in, in 2021 and really seen it uh, take off. There's a lot of interest within the PD community to understand their genetics. You know, Parkinson's is one of these diseases for many people, which is, comes out of the blue. Um, so trying to understand why they develop this disease uh, is something that a lot of people are interested in knowing. And genetics, for some, may provide an answer to that. And, and not having a gene, uh, at least one of the genes we're testing, may have an answer too. So th- it, you know, it provides uh, something for the participants as well, in addition to collecting the DNA and some of the clinical data to share with researchers. Did, did you all have to do a lot of work to bring neurologists on board? I, I mean, there's probably people on all different ends of the spectrum, but from you know, from from one side of things, there's not currently a, an approved therapy for any of the genetic forms of Parkinson's as far as I'm aware. But there is this big chicken egg problem where without, as you mentioned earlier, without testing, you're unable to run trials. But without trials, there are no approved drugs. How, how much did it take to uh, kind of bring the clinical community and, and how much help did you have from, from your other collaborators like Roy to evangelize that message? Yes, yeah, so that's a really great question. One of the fundamental issues of why there isn't a lot of genetic testing in Parkinson's disease is, as you pointed out, there's nothing. Understanding you have a genetic form of PD currently doesn't alter your treatment plan for most people. Movement disorder neurologists treat to control symptoms, and whether you have a LERC2 mutation or GBA mutation, you know, people still have dyskinesia and bradykinesia, and so they're given medications to control that and to deal with that. So one of our key things, I think, was you know enlisting the help of a neuroethicist to really make certain that what we were doing was something that would be responsible for the community. And so you know, we did that uh, just 
because of, of issues in the past when it comes to neurological space around Huntington's disease. How do you engage and talk to participants, patients about their genetic uh, status? So these were all people who had Parkinson's disease. And that was a lot of buy-in because our steering committee is comprised of a lot of really experienced neurologists who really, I could say, cut their teeth on the Huntington's days. And so they had some of that muscle memory about that experience, which didn't initially go well, but I think now is, has reached a, a good steady state on how to, how to talk to patients about genetic status. Parkinson's is different. It's not a death sentence. People live with Parkinson's for a long time and there's a potential for treatment. So this isn't just for edification. But even though we've known for genetic forms of Parkinson's for quite some time, and, and these two common ones, LERC2 and GBA, have a pretty good foundation of research around it and, and discussion, we did some surveys of movement disorder neurologists who are people who have really trained to take care of Parkinson's. And particularly, this is a group called the Parkinson's Study Group who were really involved in research and clinical studies, and we would have thought would have been really experts in this. And what we saw from a paper we published you know, based upon the survey is that they're not that confident. You know, on a scale of like one to 10, they put themselves at a five on, on their level of confidence and talking and returning results to people with Parkinson's. So what we realized then is that the job was bigger than we anticipated. So not only are we trying to educate people with Parkinson's about their disease, we have to educate uh, clinicians about how to talk to people with Parkinson's about their genetic forms. And so what we've done is had a kind of a, a two-pronged effort, you know, educating patients, but also educating clinicians. Uh, so we partnered again with the Parkinson's study group and just this past Friday had a boot camp as an opportunity. You know, Nacho was a uh, you know, presenter at that to provide training on how to return results and what those results might mean to patients. So clinicians have that, have that grounding. And then at the foundation, we're also building a, a training platform for CME that would allow clinicians to come in who may not have that time to sit through a three-hour session, but maybe have an hour or can break that up into you know, some segments to, to get that experience to do it because it's really critical. I mean, that's what, as you probably aware of, from you know, running a genetics company, getting people to talk about the results to participants is really important. It can't just come through like a piece of paper in an email. They need to have a, a live person to explain it to them, but especially in the Parkinson's community when they're 60s and 70s. It's been a long time since they took biology. So Watson Crick was probably, you know, the result around by then when they were taking biology, but still it's, the, uh, it's not something people think about on an everyday basis. And getting that to where it's become people more literate about it is important. We also need to remember that direct-to-consumer testing, sometimes they will report variants for Parkinson's disease. So it is very common that patients will come to the clinic and say, hey, I have this result. So we, as Jim said, it's very important that the movement disorder specialists and the people that, uh, you know, uh, provide care to these individuals with Parkinson's disease know what that means so they can explain it to them or at least point into the right person. So having institutions like the Parkinson's Foundation where they have the expertise or they are connected with the people that have the expertise also helps these individuals to find. But we have one case where there was somebody that believed that had a LERT2 mutation for almost 10 years until they got enrolled in PD generation and got the proper counseling and then realized that, yes, she has the LERT2 because everybody has the LERT2 gene. She didn't have the variant that caused a Parkinson. So it, it, it is extremely important to not only get the data, but also being able to report it and, and make sure that the patient understands what that means. And that's not the only time that's happened. I mean, I've heard that yeah. from a number of different clinicians who's uh, someone did direct-to-consumer testing and say, I've got the gene. Yes, but you don't have the mutation. And so it's that misunderstanding uh, that's part of it. So in addition to you know training clinicians, we're lucky we partner with Indiana University, which has a really dedicated team of genetic counselors who specialize in Parkinson's. And so they're really providing the backbone to help support 
you know, the, this effort so that, you know, we can empower people with Parkinson's to know more about their disease. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, maybe this is a opportunity to talk about how it's probably going to get more complex still in the future, because uh, Nacho alluded to the 78 risk factors, which will probably the next paper that comes out, it'll turn into 200 risk factors. How do you guys think about this already difficult to communicate the nuanced risk of LARC2 and GBA, which have a pretty large effect? How do you think about this transition into the the murky waters of polygenic scores? And, and maybe Nacho, you could actually just give us a little bit of a primer on the biology of PD in general, or, or Jim, Jim or Nacho, maybe you guys can can uh, combo this. But what role does genetics play in people who don't have one of the Mendelian or Mendelian like genes? And, and how do how do these two sides of the coin, the common low risk variants or lo- small incremental risk and and the relatively rare but high risk variants, how does that all kind of play together into the bigger picture? I, I, yeah, I can I can start. So Parkinson's is very complex. We see that from the clinical aspects where not two Parkinson uh, individuals with Parkinson's have the same symptoms. They don't have the same onset, even within the same family. So we know that there's, it's very complex and there are many different things that could influence this, starting from things that happen when you're a kid, probably. And uh, so I, I think really in the majority of the individuals with Parkinson's, there is a combination between genetics, some kind of uh, a genetic component, and then also has the environmental lifestyle and all the other things that happen to you. You know, do you play soccer? Do you do, you know, or have you been in a car accident? All those things kind of start adding up, right? Uh, so I think the majority of the, of the individuals we will, we will see that it's a combination. And obviously, that's really hard to predict, right? So even if you have the genetics, there's at least 50-60% of the a component that in, in most of them they're not going to be is not going to be determined just by your genetics. It's just a predisposition, but there are other things that need to happen in order for somebody to develop. And even if they develop it, you won't be able to predict: is it going to be in the fifties or the sixties or the seventies, or maybe you'll you know pass away from something else before you even start showing any other symptoms. So I, I think if we put this in context of PD generation, I think polygenetic scores and all those things are going to be very hard uh, to apply right now. I think. The utility of this is that if we can identify certain individuals that are in really high risk, those are great cohorts to apply neuroprotective therapies, right? Uh, so we can identify those and then find some good biomarkers to see if our therapies are really help slowing or stopping the disease. That's where those things are going to really play an important role. I don't know how important it's going to be in the individual case by case in terms of being able to predict, but we can certainly identify individuals that might benefit a lot from this kind of therapies because that. Something that people don't really realize is that uh, Parkinson's disease really starts maybe 20 or 30 years even before you start seeing some of the motor symptoms. And a lot of people believe that the treatments that we're putting up front right now to try to treat these individuals, maybe they are affected. It's just we're treating them too late in the disease. Uh, I think that's where maybe the the polygenic scores are going to play an important role. I think what's also interesting that Nacho is alluding to is you know, this idea of incomplete penetrance. So you know, there's this common mutation. We talk about the LERC2 genes, the G2019S mutation. And so we're in PD generation, we're just testing people with Parkinson's disease. So the cat's out of the bag. They already have Parkinson's. And so we're just looking for trying to see what clues may have led to this. But for other people like the children of these individuals who might have mutation or just you know other people in general who are curious, if they have a G2019S mutation, they're wondering whether they might develop Parkinson's. And the answer is, you know, as, as Nacho alluded to, we don't know. I think the best we can say is they've got a 30% chance of developing it. As we try to really understand what's influencing the penetrance of this mutation, why some people develop PD and some will not. 
but it's complicated. And then what makes it even more complicated is to think about, well, there's at least six different mutations in the LERC2 gene that are considered pathogenic. And what I think Nacho's work is really important is identifying other populations that may have mutations which are pathogenic, but because you look at a Eurocentric approach, may just not be anything. They'd be like, ah, this is you know, just a, what we call the a variance of unknown significance of these VUSs. And so, you know, the PD generation approach to reporting results to participants is if it's a VUS, we don't report it to the participants because it, we just don't know. So it, it, it wouldn't really add any uh, benefit to it. But what we're also doing on the in parallel, we've created a gene curation expert panel. This is a part of a clinical domain working group, ClinGen through the NIH. The idea of a gene curation panel is to identify which genes are relevant to Parkinson's. And I think it's, you know, the, our seven genes that we have are probably not really up for discussion. I think people pretty much will, will agree to that. The real interesting part comes into, we talk about variant curation. And this is where I think, you know, people roll up the sleeves and take off their gloves and really kind of want to duke it out to discuss what individual point mutation in a gene is relevant to Parkinson's. So, you know, I think the example is with the GBA mutation, there were some trials, you know, so GBA, if you have two mutations in that gene, leads to Gaucher's disease, but one gives you a really high risk of developing Parkinson's. And so some may be, you know, again, this idea of penetrance and risk is something that I think Nacho can talk about much better than me being the geneticist. But, you know, one mutation in particular is, is the N370S mutation. So it's not considered a risk factor or causative for Gaucher's, but it is considered relevant for Parkinson's. And so, you know, identifying what mutations are relevant for which disease is going to be really important too, because this is where, you know, the education and the training comes into play because a general genetic counselor will do their due diligence and look up and say, oh, this isn't really important. But in fact, it hasn't been called, uh, a committee hasn't come together to say, well, this is really is important for Parkinson's and allows that person to give the proper feedback on it. I know Nacho has found some unique mutations for GLR2 GBA too, I guess, is that correct for Nacho? That are, wouldn't get picked up again for this. And so, you know, having his help and helping recruiting uh, these underrepresented populations is going to be important, not only to make the call about, well, this is important or not, but I think the end result of our work will be to influence drug companies and ultimately FDA. So when a company says, well, here's got a, a drug that will, for people with GBA mutations, I bet FDA will say, well, which mutations? And so making certain that precision medicine is available for everybody by getting these underrepresented populations and their mutations being recognized as key ones could mean the difference between someone not getting the treatment because insurance won't pay for it or insurance paying for it. I mean, that kind of really puts it in, you know, squarely why you know, these types of efforts, you know, combination with a large group of people important for the, the Parkinson's community. So Nacho, where are you at with that effort? I think it's large PD, right? Is that the Latin American consortium that you're um, helping to lead and part of? I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. What stage are you all at and, and what have you learned about the LARC2 and GBA variants that might be missed. I mean, I think, Jim, you just made an excellent point about we need to shine the light there to know about these things. Otherwise, you don't know what you're you're missing. Nacho, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so, so LARC2PD is really a collaboration effort from uh, many different neurologists uh, in Latin America and the Caribbean. So this is a project that started in 2006, really from high motivation from these clinicians to be able to give an answer to the patients about it, this was when LARC2 was really hot. And they really wanted to know is that do any of my patients carry any of these variants, right? There's a high uh, European ancestry in a lot of the countries. So they're like, if it's in Europe, it's probably going to be here too. But a lot of them didn't really have the resources to be able to test, especially for a gene that huge, because LER2 has 51 exons. So it's a very, very large gene. So really, this started as 
as me trying to provide help uh, to try to identify uh, LER2 mutations. And then we also start looking at synuclein and parking, which again, were common in early onset individuals. And then it kind of grew organically. We started with only two sites, one in Argentina and one in Peru. And then when people found out what we were doing, they said, hey, we want to add our patients and they start sending the DNA. So if you fast forward, you know, 15 years, now we have 36 centers in 13 different countries. We have over almost 5,000 individuals and our goal is to get up to 9,000 in the next two years. As Jim said, COVID kind of threw a wrench on, on our plans and is making things really hard, especially because COVID is hitting really hard at some of those regions where we were high expectations of, of recruiting lots of individuals. But yeah, we, we're getting to the point now also with, again, with another grant from the Parkinson's Foundation. So the, really the, the first 4,000 individuals were recruited with a small two-year grant from the foundation. And then once we created this cohort, we apply again now to do some science, right? So first we needed the cohort and now we apply for uh, to do some science. So we were able to do the first genome-wide association study. So trying to identify or try to really characterize the, the, the genomic component of Parkinson's in this individual. So we have money to genotype about 1,500 individuals, about 800 patients and uh, 700 controls. And we just got that published in Annals of Neurology where we saw first that synuclein is very important. It's probably the most important uh, gene also in uh, Latinos as we have seen previously in Europeans and Asians. But using very uh, smart techniques by, by some uh, people that we collaborate with, we were able, also uh, able to dissect uh, the ancestry, especially the Native American and the African ancestry, which also is very frequent in some countries like Brazil, Colombia, uh, even in the coast of Peru, we see a lot of African ancestry. And then just studying those ancestry on their own, uh, identify some areas of the genome that might be important in those specific populations. So um, obviously, you know, 1,500 on a GWAS level is very uh, small. So that's why we're trying to grow the cohort. Uh, and we now have an R1 that will allow us to genotype uh, all 9,000 individuals to be able to do, a you know, a much larger a cohort and try to replicate some of this. But the synuclein hit was uh, replicated by 23andMe. They have a, a large cohort of Latinos and they were able to replicate our uh, synuclein. So I think we're in a really good spot right now to be able to do more interesting things. And, and our idea also in large PD is to grow the research locally. So there's a lot of efforts to try to do a lot of genotype-phenotype correlation. So, you know, we've identified LER2 patients, GBA patients. Now, can we characterize those and compare it to the people in the United States and Europe, you know, and see if they, they have any differences? Because we need to understand that genetics also play a role in modifying uh, this penetrance that Jim was talking about. So there's other variants in other genes that might be making a variant like G219S more penetrant or less penetrant, depending on where you're coming from. And we've, we've seen that with APOE in Alzheimer's, for example. If you have a APOE in an African background, it's actually less effect than if you have it in a European background. So this adds a, a level of complexity in populations like the Latinos, where there's such a huge admixture, right? So that when we do local ancestry and we look at their haplotypes, they have you know, lots of their genome comes from Africa, Native Americans, European, and those are all variants that are interacting with each other and making this story even more complicated. So yeah, to, to me, is as a researcher, is mesmerizing and, and I'm very excited about, you know, the things that we can do. But, uh, you know, to be able to bring this to personal as medicine is a huge, huge thing that we need to, you know, understand and, and kind of jump over uh, if we want to be able to apply this to individual risk. So... Yeah, Jim, I, I I mentioned at the start of the show that you you look after a 260 million or so 
dollar budget to fund research. And, and just hearing Nacho talk, you can just hear the new ideas spinning in his head. And I'm just interested in learning more about your process of you can't just focus on genetics. You've got to look at the entire spectrum of potential research that you all can support from the Parkinson's Foundation from the early fundamental biology all the way through to, I'm sure there are people asking you to fund trials and, and things like that. How how do you think, and maybe you could talk us through your your architecture or thought process for how you, as a foundation, think about where you put what sounds like a lot of money, but really doesn't probably last very long when you start to do some of these really large scale projects. Yeah, that's a really good question. And we're not quite that large. It would be great if we were as funders. But I think even if you were to combine all the funders in the PD space, it's just a drop in the bucket compared to what's, you know, the billions that are necessary to to really make a difference. But our approach, uh, as you said, is really to, you know, think about uh, how do we generate a pipeline of ideas that can really impact people with Parkinson's and look to to make differences along that way. And so, you know, what it comes down to is a lot of times it's conversations to understand and to encourage people to you know, put their ideas together, pen to paper, and give us a chance to review them. You know, this is something I want to make clear is not based upon Nacho didn't get funded because he and I had a good conversation and really supportive of it. Went through a peer review process, as you would expect, bring in some outside experts who can help evaluate whether the idea makes sense in the context of where we are. But, you know, one of the things I think we've recognized, it's important not to have a narrow focus on, you know, uh, what's the the mode du jour of, of what causes Parkinson's, but to just keep an open mind to track where research is going so that we don't go down dead ends with our funding, but just make certain that the people who really know uh, where the science is going are the scientists themselves. So, you know, we uh, rely on them to help give us that guidance. And so by having an open call for many of our grants programs, our funding mechanisms, we can see where the science is going and then be able to really evaluate, you know, where are we today and what might make the biggest impact within the PD space and helping people with Parkinson's. What's also unique in what we do with our evaluation is that we include people with Parkinson's in, as part of the review panel. So not only do we have scientific experts who are there to really ensure that you know, we're only going to fund good science, but we have people with Parkinson's in there to ensure that what we fund is is relevant to a person with Parkinson's. You know, the NIH is a, funds a lot and does important work, but they have uh, a different mandate in the sense. Our goal is to really help people with Parkinson's. So pure academic research, things that are too far afield that for what will impact people with Parkinson's are, are not things we fund. And, and having person with PD speak up during a discussion, say, you know, I don't see what merit this has. How is this going to help me or my family deal with Parkinson's? So those are the kinds of the things we consider as we put together RFAs as well as you know, what we want to fund in the long term. Absolutely. I, I, we're running up against time here. So I did want to ask you both one question to close out, which is really a general one, and I'll give you a moment to think about it. But I'd, I'd love to hear, and, and really this is for the audience as much as it is for me, what one area of either Parkinson's research, precision neurology more widely, or precision medicine more widely, you're really excited about. Um, and in particular, things that maybe people aren't talking as much about as they can. It could be a new technology a new initiative uh, or, or something else. Who, I'll give you a moment, both a moment. Looks like maybe you guys have some ideas in mind, but I'd love to hear about anything you'd like to share as something that you think in 10 years time, five years time, we'll all be really excited about it, but it's it's emerging right now. So I think what we have seen that could be really exciting and the cusp of it is this idea of gene delivery in an unconventional way. So our COVID vaccine is a you know, nanoparticle, you know, drop it of fat, 
uh, wrapped around uh, an mRNA that gets expressed in you know, largely muscle cells. Um, but if we could develop a way for which that those nanoparticles to be injected and go right to the brain to treat um, you know, neurodegenerative disease, I think that would be fantastic. We had funded some research in the past, you know, to, to help start exploring that. But I think, you know, that would be a place we could go with precision medicine that could ultimately move from, you know, treatments, which are, you know, uh, taking care of maybe stopping the disease, but are, you know, ongoing to something that becomes maybe not one and done, but certainly would uh, minimize how often someone has to go get a therapy to control their disease. In Parkinson's, people are taking upwards of, you know, 10 to 12 pills a day to manage their disease. And the timing of that has to be very exquisite. So it's not just like, oh, I'll take some in the morning, take some in the evening. It's, you know, setting the, ti the timer on your watch and trying to take those during the day to maintain optimal function. To be able to relieve people of that burden would be liberating for our community. Uh, to be able to cure the disease clearly is our goal. And so, you know, I think the idea of precision medicine, of targeting individual genes to provide that correction, aside from having to do what in essence is brain surgery, right? Currently, the idea of delivering gene therapy is to drill a hole in someone's head and, and inject a virus uh, to act as a carrier to take the gene to the cell. But to be able to do it with an injection or infusion would be amazing. Completely agreed. Nacho, what, what do you have in mind? I'm curious to hear. I'm very biased. I'm always thinking about, you know, how we can use genetics to help individuals with Parkinson's disease. And I think uh, Jim alluded to, to this, that ultimately that's the goal. You know, it's great to find a gene, but, if, you know, if, if it's going to take 20 years to develop a therapy, you know, it's too, it's too long. I, I, want to I want to have, you know, shorter uh, goals in mind. So I'll, we're always trying to find ways to apply, you know, well, it could be precision medicine or personalized medicine uh, using genetics. So I, I already mentioned, you know, being able to identify cohorts with high risk uh, that we can treat. But I, I think we can do more with genetics. The more testing we do, both with PD generation, but also more GWAS, we might be able to use this genetic information to predict outcomes, both clinical outcomes. So can we tell a patient that just get diagnose, well, this is what your Parkinson's looks like. Because that's something that the patients really are afraid uh, because they go to Parkinson's support groups and they see other patients and some of them look like they don't have Parkinson's. Some of them look, you know, they're in wheelchairs. There's a huge, huge range of how your Parkinson's might develop. So being able to tell them from the beginning, well, this is what you should expect. I think that will be a major thing. And also to do the same thing with treatment outcomes. Can we identify individuals that are going to respond really well to a levodopa. Maybe they don't need anything else. People that will respond really well to DBS or people that won't respond, right? So they don't go through this whole thing. I think that could be very important and also try to come up with uh, more specific uh, treatments and maybe a combination of different treatments for certain patients, depending on what kind of biologically what their cause is, right? Um, so I, I think that I'm very excited about that. And uh, I'm part of a, a very global initiative that is funded by the Aligning Science of uh, Across Parkinson's, the ASAP, uh, is, uh, is the GP2 project where our idea is to genotype 150,000 individuals, uh, 50,000, at least 50,000 of those being from underrepresented populations to really map out exactly what all the variants, all the genes that are associated to Parkinson's disease uh, to be able to create this map that will guide us to, to answer some of these questions that I was talking about. So I, I think those those two things I'm, I'm very excited about. And again, I, I really hope that we can uh, achieve and I can give a better answer to patients when they said, okay, so how does what you do, how, how does that help me? Which it, it happens very often. I think we've got the, the mashup of these would be Nacho being able to identify people at risk, 
and then the providing the therapy before they get the disease so that you can knock it out. That would be, that's the holy grail. So people never have Parkinson's. You hit the nail on the head. I think I always think about the promise of genetics is, is there's sort of a barbell for some people. You've got the Star Trek level therapies that you're talking about, Jim. Can we deliver a gene therapy to the brain in some amazing way? And then there's a whole other end of the spectrum, which is can we use data in, in a way that means we never get there in the first place? And ultimately, we're probably going to need both. But if we can push as much to one side or the other of that spectrum, I think we'll be in good shape where we only need to intervene when absolutely necessary. And otherwise, we, we act early. Well, thank you both. I really appreciate it. This has been an amazing conversation. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm looking forward to catching up with you guys in a couple of years to hear on how these things are going. And I know just everybody who's in the Parkinson's community really appreciates all the work you do. So, so thanks so much. Thanks for the opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. Thank you all for listening and uh, see you next time.